Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Stratticast. This week, myself and Mike are going to look back at the Champions League encounter between Manchester United and Barcelona in 1994, the first game at Old Trafford, which ended to all. Mike, how are you since we last spoke? Yeah, I'm good. It's a beautiful day down here in London. Um, I have just spent a large proportion of this afternoon doing research for the next load of um, icons pieces. So the next three is going to be the Holy Trinity. Um, all get their own pieces. So uh, child and best and law. Oh, very good, very good. The one that we put out this week with Billy Murder was excellent as well. I think um, the, the way in which you wrote that one, it was more like for a, a general football fan. It was like a profile of, of, of Billy Murdoch's kind of background as well as his time at United. Yeah, and he was such an important figure. A, for United, I mean, let's break it down. Manchester United did not won any major trophy before he arrived. And then within, within four years of him being at the club, they'd won a league t- uh, I think two league titles and an <laughs> FA Cup. So that was the difference he made. And he was a huge figure in the game as well. The, the, original, the original catalyst. I think so. I think so. He was, he was probably one of, if you look at, you talk about old football, it's a very, very different game, completely different. And he was the, I would say, the first one who you can really sort of draw a thread from to the modern game. I think you look at him and then someone like Herbert Chapman, who was the Arsenal manager in the in the 20s, would be would be the other one as well. And actually, I think the um, United manager at the time, when Meredith was signed, whose name has just escaped me at the moment, but he was... Um, he was originally the manager of Man City, then came over to United after a match fixing scandal. Uh, well, just before the match fixing scandal, and then decided to bring Billy Benedict with him. So, yeah, really, really interesting guy. A lot to pick through with him. And then the next thing I'm looking forward to, so we've got everything done for the Bobby Charlton one. 
when you really go through everything with Bobby Charlton, he is, as far as I'm concerned, the best footballer England has ever produced. They've mm. never produced a better mm. player than Charlton. No, absolutely. I mean, like they produce some great ones, and, and you know, it, it, in the game we're gonna we're gonna cover. Um, one particular player was named captain, which Dennis lost at the start. Well, if he's captain for England, he might as well be captain for for United. Um, in you know that, that the game we watched this week, the two all against Barcelona, that was the game you came to me. You wanted this to to review. Um, what what a game! What an encounter it was. It was, and this is still. At a stage where not just United but English clubs in general, really in Europe, were not were not good. And um, the concepts of this, I think, with clubs who are only about two years removed from um, coming back into European football after the Heysel ban. Um, so Leeds were the first team to play in this competition in '92 um, for their league title in '91, and then obviously United. The next season, uh, 93-94, um, played, didn't get past the first round. He got attacked by Galatasaray in that pretty infamous tie that I mentioned um, in a fair bit of detail in the um, piece about Eric Cantona, uh, the second part of the uh, Eric Cantona Icons piece that I wrote. Um, so this was our second season back in Europe. It was the first time we'd been in Europe since, I think, 1984. Um, and uh, Sorry, 1991 was the first time we've been in Europe since 84 and it's weird <laughs> if you look at those times we were in European Cup decisions you got here and then you got 91 when we were in the Cup Winners Cup and then before that I think it was the 84 Cup Winners Cup Barcelona is sort of the free is the team that crops up in every one of those to, to link things through they are in, in many many ways I look at them and probably Real Madrid and Juventus and Bayern as, as clubs that are just seem, seemingly inextricably linked to United in in European football, yeah, of course, and you know all these clubs, they're they're institutions of the game. You know the the, the Barcelona we're talking here with, I see, you see traits in the game of how their tactics kind of allowed Ron Koeman to stem up up into the up, opponent's half, um, which led to their second goal in the game with a great assist. But like you know, the, the, these are um, clubs that had. The likes of Alex Ferguson, um, Johan Cruyff, and philosophers of the game, really, and people that kind of thought outside the box uh, and were successful. Um, Ronald Koeman in the game, you know, tactically, everything kind of stemmed through him. Um, the major, vast majority of Barcelona's attacks came from him playing the ball out from the back, and we talk about that a lot nowadays in the transfer market when teams are looking for defenders about ball playing centre backs. He was a incredible one. Do you know, he was unbelievable. But he was almost not really a centre half. He was a playmaking midfielder who just played. It's not something you really get in the game right now. But you know, it was more common, sort of, really from the nineteen sixties all the way through to the early nineteen nineties, which was the libero, which was essentially a playmaking centre half. Um, Start with the Italians. He used to have it. Um, with the, as part of the Catanaccio system, so a very, very uh, a deep lying um, playmaker. So, like the inter team in the 60s was, was a guy called Luis Suarez, the original Luis Suarez. He used to play that role. Um, <clears throat> and then obviously Beckenbauer uh, came through um, at that time. Germany actually had two. They had a guy called Horst Blankenberg as well. He played for the great Ajax team in the late 1960s, who won three European Cups on the trot. 
Um, you had, I think, Reed. I haven't. I had. I think Reed Kroll did sort of a job like that for Holland. And then obviously you got Frank Rijkaard who came through later on, and then Ronald Koeman as well. Um, so it, it was, um, and in fact, Ruud Hullet became that kind of player later in his career. Um, and I think the last player I've seen who did that job was a guy who used to play for Barcelona called Rafael Marquez, who was That's a centre half, nice. but who was ostensibly a deep line playmaker. He was a magnificent player. Um, in a bit of legal trouble, I believe, for really? having links to, yeah, I think having links to a large drug cartel in Mexico, <laughs> which is, it's a little bit like, you know, the story that's come out recently about Ronaldinho being arrested with a fake passport in Paraguay. <laughs> These bizarre stories of what happens to players when they leave. But he's the last one I saw who was um, really in that mode. Maybe David Luiz, but... David Luiz doesn't have the kind of in-game intelligence to sort of be at the level of a guy like Koeman. No, and the team, not. the teams are really interested. Actually, I mean, you look at that Barcelona team. Um, so the the game, with the video we watched of this game was the original Granada ITV mm. broadcast when they used to have the Champions League. Um, I, you just always had that thing in your head. I, I just always feel like that European football doesn't feel quite as special. No, now, yeah, yeah. As he did then. I think part of it is you did just, just didn't see these other teams as much. But I, I do think ITV did. I don't know. It was the fact that you could see a game on terrestrial television as well on free to air TV. And actually, the coverage was, was really good. It was like, God, you, I mean, this is way back. Bob Wilson presenting. You had Terry Venables and um, Dennis Law, yeah. the pundits of this game. I, have I always to say, forgot, yeah. actually, what a good. Um, what a really switched on, smart, great talker Dennis Law actually was. Yeah, yeah. It, it is. He's such a sharp guy. He's got great mind for the game. Did you um, see how at the, at the beginning of the coverage, when they when he introduced um, Venables and and Law, they were so happy when he was mentioning two of the greatest footballers or whatever. They were really humble. They were like Cheshire cats smiling. Um, it was that you know it wasn't like nowadays where kind of people that are in those positions as pundits they're like they're so comfortable they're so media trained um praise like that doesn't quite you know get to get the same smile no definitely not and Terry Venables is great as well I always have a lot of time for Terry Venables actually he was he was a really good it's sort of overlooked actually what a good manager Terry Venables was this is a guy who won the league title with Barcelona he got into a European Cup final in the 80s um really really good manager and again you know, did a fantastic job when he was in charge of England. Great game. And then the, the commentators as well, which is Brian Moore and, and Kevin Keegan. And you always forget with Keegan because we kind of mock him now what happened to Lee Tatteris. But again, great mind for the game. Could love to talk about football. You could see he absolutely loved like this Barcelona team and he loved the approach that Croft took. And I think there was a, to some extent, I think because Keegan played a big proportion, played a, a um, a significant proportion of his career in Europe, that was already when the Ballon d'Or when he played for Hamburg and won the European Cup with them, that he really had a, a greater grasp of the European game than I think a lot of English football people did at that time. And The Barca team is really interesting. I mean, you've got Carlos Busquets in goal, who is the father of Sergio Busquets. Actually, he was the one who got Sergio Busquets a trial in at the club when people weren't interested in taking him. He was basically a sweeper-keeper. And essentially, for all purposes, there's only really two proper defenders in this team, in uh, Jose Abelardo and Miguel Nadal, the beast. Nadal who was, was an fantastic. Aw- 
he was an unbelievable. Like, could play midfield, of course, as well. I think there was a bit about five minutes into the game where Barca like picking a ball around. And Barca really struggled in the first half. Actually, United were all over him in that first half. But they moved the ball forward, and suddenly Nadal, who's supposed to be one of the two only proper centre halves that they have, makes this surging run. He's come obviously from way in his own half, and he's making a run in to the United box to try and get on the end of this pass. He just this is absolutely bonkers. But see, I mean, uh, on the other side, then United caused havoc down the flanks for Barcelona. Oh, definitely. Very uh, it was essentially you had. Both teams actually played quite fluid formations, really. Yeah. Um, I think, obviously, Cruyff had... That was how he played anyway. And you can see when you look at... Uh, I was chatting to you about this. When you look at that Barcelona team, you can see the thread going directly from Cruyff to Guardiola and yeah. the way that Guardiola looks at the game. Having a lot of ball players. You know, you've got Guardiola in this team. You've got Koeman. Even the two centre-halves are good on the ball. And then essentially, you had the two wing-backs... Sergi, he was a really, really good player, played for Spain. The guy on the other side, Luis, we'll get to him soon enough. He was he really struggled. Um, but then you had four attackers in Jose Baquero, he was great. And then you had Romario, Stoichkov and Bagedistan. It was just incredible to even go, yeah, we're away from home in Europe, let's play four attackers and like two defenders. That makes perfect sense. But United is interested as well. Obviously, United were hamstrung to an extent Obviously, a little bit naive tactically at times, but they were hamstrung by that foreigner rule. You could yeah, only have yeah. three non-home-produced players in your team. You could argue that Cantona's suspension lessened the headache for Fergie. Yes, it did, because the temptation would have been to play him. But oddly, I think not having him in this game gave United a greater tactical discipline. Um, I am sort of convinced we'll get into the more of the flow of the game in a minute but there was a, a period in the game about half an hour in where I think had United managed to get a second goal to yeah. double their lead they would have gone on and won the game mm. um, but it was interesting so this game obviously Schmeichel's in goal who didn't play the next game in Barcelona because of this rule um, and Gary Walsh rather infamously played that game the poor guy um, and then so Paul Parker played at centre half I was a big fan of Paul Parker he was a terrific player he was part of what you call United's little dream team that they had back then um, where there was sort of a definitive 11 that would play that I think they only managed to play together about 20 times in the 93-94 season but did not lose a single game when that 11 played and he was a part of that but played at centre half because he was a brilliant man marker and they wanted someone to basically man-mark Romario. And then uh, you had Pallister with him at centre-half. I mean, I like Pallister, but he did have lapses in concentration at times, which is a nice way of putting it. And then Dennis Irwin, always brilliant. Dennis Irwin will always play as long as he was fit, he would play. And then David May, who is a guy that I just momentarily forget ever played for Manchester United. He was actually like, the club for about five years. David May looked like he literally just got up out of bed, got dressed and left his hair any old way. Yeah, he was. David May, the, 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 the most memorable thing, the greatest memory I have of David May is him doing a John Terry in the Champions League final yeah. and celebrating like he played and won the game, <laughs> despite the fact that he played virtually no part in United's treble winning campaign whatsoever at that point. Um, and in the midfield, so, uh, you know, much as you get now, when the, the broadcasters put out the teams, they are given 
people that don't know, the broadcasters get given, and all the journalists are given team sheets with information. That's what they're given before the game. So when you, you know, when people try and argue the Tossi broadcasters and they say, well, why, why have they said that the team's playing like this? Clearly they don't, because that's what they were given before the game. And United's summation was initially lining up as a 4 3 1 2. So you had the back four, and then you had Keane, Ince, Kachelskis, with Butt further ahead of them. I suspect Nicky Butt was there to try and press Kuman and Guardiola and try and break up their rhythm and stop getting on the ball. People always forget, because of the fondness of Paul's goals, for a long time, Nicky Butt was actually much more favoured for United yeah. in big matches. And he was the first one after gigs from that class of 92 to make the break into the first team. Um, I'm a big fan of Nicky Butt. I think he was a he was terrific excellent. player. He was yeah, excellent. he was a really, really good player. He was a, he was a genuine, genuine top, top class midfield player. Um, and then you had nominally Lee Sharp and Mark Hughes up front. But what tended to happen is Butt in St. Keane would drop in and form a free where Butt would sort of, any one of the three would generally advance at any one time, although Ince tended to sit back a little bit more. And then Kachelskis and Sharp would pull out to the flanks with Hughes basically occupying Abelardo and Nadal in, in the middle. And Nadal sort of sat on Hughes more than Abelardo, which I kind of get because they needed someone to compete with Hughes physically. But down the flanks, I mean, you mentioned Kachelskis' sharp just caused yeah. absolute havoc with Irvin, Irwin overlapping on the left-hand side with uh, Lee Sharp as well. And, and Keane tended to pull out onto the left-hand side as well. So essentially, what United were actually doing is... So Luis, who was playing on the right uh, wing, essentially, Luis and Sergio were wing-backs. They weren't full-backs, they were playing as wing-backs. Luis was not first choice. The first choice of Barcelona was Albert Ferrer. You know, Albert yeah. Ferrer was one of what is known as the dream team, that Barcelona team that won the European Cup in won three La Liga titles in a row. He wasn't available for this game, so they played Luis. And United targeted him ruthlessly. I mean, Irwin, you'd see at times that literally Irwin, Keane and Sharp would just overload on the left-hand side. And they just overran Luis. And this, the game started at such a furious pace um, you know, and and you could see United, uh, Barcelona really, really struggled. Yeah, they did. And Kuman, this is the thing. Kuman was great in the second half. In the first half, he was almost non-existent. Like he he could barely get in the game, and that was because he just he, he wasn't able to get the ball really. And um, uh, essentially, just had this what looked like a chasm between sort of the the defenders and essentially the four up front that they had Barcelona and then the other six players and there was just like a huge gap between the two because the other six could not break out the push up um, especially in the case of Luis and Sergi because they were afraid of leaving the space in behind for Kachelskis and and um, and, uh, and uh, Sharp and you know the goal comes from that work down the flanks the first goal it was a great Lovely little Paul from Paul Ince. Mm. Actually, he was such a good player, Paul Ince. He could do everything in the midfield. It's a lovely weighted pass. He plays it into Lee Sharp on the left. And he just sends in a beautiful cross to Mark Hughes. He just heads it in. Classic Mark Hughes, getting his head on the ball. And it's 1-0. Kuhlman was caught in no man's land. Pardon? Kuhlman was caught in no man's land. Yeah, he was. He was. Which was... <laughs> the thing with Kuhlman was, he always had some defend, proper defenders in there with him 
um, to sort of just in case he did go wandering off like that. He, yeah, he was he was absolutely nowhere. And um, there's more poor defending I'm going to get to later with United on the second goal. We'll yeah. get to that later. But for them, like the next ten minutes, United just absolutely all over Barcelona. Really, from the twenty to the thirty minute mark. You know, there was another... Hughes had a great chance about half an hour in. Sharp, down the left again, sends a wonderful ball in to Hughes. And he just mishits it. Mm. He just mishits it. And the thing with Hughes is, because of the time he actually... It was almost like for a second he didn't realise how much time he had. He had a lot of space for someone who was just outside the six-yard box. If he, did, if he literally could have taken a touch and then just smashed it into the net. And I think had United got 2-0 up... They would have gone and won this game. I, I wouldn't have envisioned Barcelona coming back from two uh, from from two nil down. I, but... I, I think looking back at the the first half overall, though, United got pretty much everything right. Pretty much everything right. You they know, were excellent. You'd say, Bar, if the crossing was a little better, a bit better, they would have been going in further ahead. They would have been going yeah, in, I in think the lead. Chelsea's... Crossing was a little askew, yeah, particularly was, that day. I think Sharp's sharp delivery was much better. Um, unusually, it used to be the way around. Sharp used to have an issue with delivery, so Ferguson used to play more centrally to score goals. But um, I think the killer for, for United was was the Barcelona goal, which came about five or six minutes after Hughes had that chance. Mm. And this was pretty much the only thing Barcelona did of note in the whole first half. Apart from Nadal making a mad run from his own box into the United box the first five minutes... And it's Koeman who starts to move. He runs out from the defence with the ball, which yeah. is what you expect people like Koeman to do. Plays the ball into Bacero, who just plays an absolutely... Oh, my goodness. Bacero was a brilliant player. Um, and he's one of those players when you look back and think, why was Spain at international level so bad when you had people like Guardiola <laughs> and Bacero and Big Edison in your team? But... It was yeah, it was an incredible like reverse slide rule pass, and then the one time uh, the United defence loses Romario, he runs in behind because mm-hmm. David May stupidly played him on side, <laughs> and then just it's a lovely finish actually as well. He hits it first time, doesn't he? And yeah, I mean, I think that was the point where Kuman started to assert himself in the game. Um, just a detail I want to pick up on: you never see this anymore. Ferguson was interviewed at half time yeah, in this game. Yeah, yeah. What? He, 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 <laughs> I don't know how they got him to agree to that, but yeah, I noticed that as well. I was like, when did this ever happen? But he was happy with the performance in the first half. He said he was very pleased. Yeah, and, Law, uh, and, and Danny Sloan and Terry Venables said the same thing. He said they did pretty much everything right, and if they kept doing that, um, they would be, they, you know, they'd be okay. But uh, you know, the the problem was, I think the goal. I think just gave Barcelona a bit of the thing of, okay, we're still in this game. Yeah, you see, Even, the thing is, though, it, if you give Romario that kind of space, he doesn't require many touches. You know, no, so he didn't. To, to let a player the... like that in, and he's dribbling too, he was almost, it reminded me looking back at clips of Garincha, his balance, and the way he just drifted in there, he could turn so quickly behind, you know, he's an incredible player. Yeah, he was really strong as well, deceptively strong as Zora Mario because he was quite short and stocky and had a low centre of gravity. Um, uh, yeah, he was he was pretty. Uh, somebody he reminds me of somebody reminds me of him now a little bit is Sergio Aguero has a little bit of of Romario about him. I would say Aguero does a lot more work off the ball than um, 
than Romario ever did. But... Could you say Hazard is a shit Romario? No, no, never. I mean, I love Eden Hazard. <laughs> I think he's brilliant. Different, I'd say Hazard is more of a midfielder than a, than a forward, I think. No, I'm not having that. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so you you, men- you mentioned briefly that Nicky Butt was coming through with this time, and they they brought on Paul Scholes late in the match. The commentator noted was saying a young striker. Um, it's funny looking back at members of Class ninety two in those days with the the haircuts and the tin frames, and these boys were just like so oblivious to what was to come. Incredibly baggy shirts. Yeah, exactly, and 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 short shorts. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, it was, and. Is Nicky Butler? Was he 19, 20 years old, I think, at this point? Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, I loved him. He was one of those players who was, um, he seemed to be, if you ever came across the analysis of European journalists, the South American journalists, they loved Nicky Butt because they recognised someone who was tactically a very clever player, technically a much better player than he was ever given credit for. I think people just sort of look back and remember him as a workhorse. He was actually a wonderful passer mm. the ball. He was pretty good at running with the ball as well. He did the same thing. Yeah, you think things. about England's 2002 World Cup run, Nicky Butt really was a key player for England in the midfield. And you have to remember, this is uh, an England who went into the competition without Steven Gerrard, who was probably the informed midfielder that England had. <clears throat> And Nicky Butt sort of underpinned the whole midfield. He brought everything together. He gave them a shape. He gave them a discipline. He was he was absolutely terrific. Uh, but and I was I was a huge, huge fan. But um, the second half, really, this game, it was you know you talk about a game of two halves. It was all Barcelona for a lot of this second half. The, they took Luis off probably for his own mental well-being because he'd just been absolutely decimated um, in the first half. And he brought on. Uh, a guy called Eusebio, who is a midfielder. He was another midfielder. So he brought in another ball-playing midfielder and then basically moved Abelardo to the right. And I think Guardiola was kind of playing at centre-half at this point. Mm. Um, and then Koeman was just playing wherever wherever he pleased, really. <laughs> at this point in the game, he was just sort of... He would, like, periodically drop into defence to come and get the ball if he wanted to. Or there he'd pop up on the right. I think you mentioned this to me, he just does one bit where he just pops up on the right-hand side. In fact, the the, the Barcelona second goal where they take the lead, which is about five minutes after the break, they come out after the second half. He just pops up on the right-hand side, plays a magnificent ball into Vicero, who I have to... The thing I've got in my notes is appalling marking in capital letters because Vicero's on his own in the United area. He's got four red shirts around him. Yeah. Nobody closes him down. And Becquero literally has time to take the ball down, control it, set himself, and then finish. It was the ball from, from Koeman, though. I think they're literally shocked, probably, United, like, because no one saw that ball being looped over like that. I know you, you'd expect concentration levels to be high, but I think that pass was picked out of nowhere. I mean, he was, but I mean, for goodness sake, if when there's four of you with nobody to mark in a box yeah, and yeah. you let someone take a touch before they hit it, that's, um, you know, I'll quote a very angry Roy Keane in an Ipswich Town press conference, should have cleared the ball. <laughs> Don't let the ball bounce in your area. It, it, it was poor defending because United 
generally defended very well in this game. That's the thing, though, isn't it? We like this game. United would have won this game if it wasn't for such a sloppy defender. Yes, I think so. I think so. It was sloppy defending and a combination of just the flashes of brilliance of this was the Cruyff Barcelona team coming towards the end of his cycle. I think it was uh, the next. They didn't actually win anything this season, Barcelona, and they didn't win anything the next season. And Cruyff had an enormous falling out with the president at the time, Jose Luis Nunez, and um, that was it really. And this was already the point where. I think Guardiola was starting at uh, Guardiola. I get him and Cruyff mixed up the best. So Cruyff was starting to grate on his players. Yeah. Um, so Laudrop, Real Madrid actually won the league, I think, this season. Laudrop had gone to Real Madrid uh, in the summer. Um, so the previous season, Barcelona had actually got to the final of the competition and they lost 4 0 to AC Milan. They got absolutely decimated in that game. And that was quite an infamous game because that was sort of at the point where the, the falling out between Guardiola and Michael Laudrup occurred. And you could pretty much chart the downfall of that Barcelona team to that game, the 4-0, and when that happened. And really the next game when United and Barcelona played each other and Barcelona beat us 4-0, um, that was sort of the last kind of flash of brilliance from that team before the it imploded. The, the, the less I mean, said about that game, the better. I know, I know. But it's amazing when you look at the personalities in that team that it didn't happen sooner. When you look at people like Koeman and Romario yeah. and Stoichkov <laughs> and you wonder how this team managed to hold together as long as it did. Speaking of Stoichkov, though, you made an absolute meal, didn't you? When he seemed to... <laughs> he made a meal of one particular challenge. And once he seen the stretcher come and he was up, like, right as rain. <laughs> if you were putting together a, a bastard's eleven. <laughs> Stoichkov would be your first pick up front because he was a great player. <laughs> I would I would have Stoichkov and Diego Costa up front in my bastards Ooh, yeah. eleven. Could be a great front two, but it would also be a front two that you would just despise playing against because he was great at gamesmanship. Stoichkov was a hard man though, and he was a complete nutcase uh, for anyone who wasn't. Who sort of anyone that's listened to this podcast, who maybe Stoichkov was a little bit before their time. I saw enough of him. Great player. Um, in fact, he'd just come off the 94 World Cup that year where Bulgaria got to the semi-finals that year. And he was... Played a major role. Yeah, I would say he was arguably the best player in that competition um, yeah. when they finished fourth that year. I, 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 you know, That was the first World Cup I remember watching. And I would have said, for a lot of the games that I saw, they were the best team of the tournament. They were the best team to watch. Um, and they were just really, really good, and they were quite. I think they were just undone um, by like a rather brilliant Roberto Baggio in the uh, semi-final. Would um, um, Would Paul Ince make your bastards eleven? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He was, he was, he was brilliant, and he was, he was United's best player in the second half. You know, yeah. when United were being completely overrun, he picked um, everyone up. He picked everyone up because it was, United were under a lot of pressure. But Barcelona, we mentioned that they were all overs in the second half. And he was the, the experienced player that lifted everyone else up and was driving force midfield. But just something as well, there was it was a great combination with Seth and Keane. So when Keane was able to drive forward, both of them were as hard as nails. You know, so yeah. they could go to battle with anyone. I think I remember Keane saying that Ince was his favourite midfield partner that I'm he had surprised. as well. I'm not surprised, yeah. Um, but yeah, hard as nails, both technically... Brilliant footballers could do everything. Um, 
you know, when I was talking about Bobby Charlton before, uh, these are two midfielders in that mould, maybe not technically as good as Charlton was, but they certainly had that about them. And um, when you look at, obviously, this was a um, an interesting season for United as well, because United didn't win anything this season. Mm. We, uh, I mean, it was weird. At this point in the season, United were in a great position. They were, by the December, they were cantering towards the league title. Um and actually, going into this game, the first two games, United had beaten Gothenburg, a good Gothenburg team that got to the quarterfinals of the competition this year, finished top of this group. They were a good side. Jasper Blomkis was actually in that team. They were a good team, had several members of the Sweden 94 World Cup team that finished third uh, in there. We'd beaten them 4-2 in the first game. And then we'd gone to Istanbul, played Galatasaray. We got a point there and actually beat Galatasaray in the return game, which sort of exercised kind of the demons of the previous year somewhat. But it was interesting, really, where United collapsed was the two games after this, where we lost to Barcelona and Gothenburg away from home. That that finished us off, really. Um, not getting them, or maybe not getting a, not getting a 1-0 win or something in Istanbul was really what finished us off. But... Yeah, I mean, pretty much for most of the second half, Kuma was just running the game and Ince was sort of putting out fires. Like you said, he was picking everybody up, organising the defence. You know, he was, he was. I would have said, you know, for me at this point, in, for this team, Ince was the leader really more than, I mean, United had a few leaders in the team, but I felt Ince was the was sort of the, him and Bruce were the two sort of generals and cues. Uh, with the, the generals who sort of marshalled that team. Um, See, even for United's second goal, Ince's, Ince's work, and to to get that ball to Roy Keane and drive through how many players, uh, just p- complete and utter determination and strength. He, that, that was an unbelievable goal, but it showed too, these were two top quality teams that could play good football. United, uh, again, coming, coming in from the flank with Keane with a low cross, and then the cheekily back heel it, flick it into the back of the net, Remarkable goal. That was a brilliant goal. In fact, the, 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 all four of the goals in this game are really, really good goals. Um, it was a high, really high quality football. I think the thing that sort of turned things back in United's favour was when they brought Steve Bruce on for David May, and then Paul Parker went out to the right. And then Steve Bruce, people often forget, was a really good ball playing defender. Um, who provided a big threat on set pieces for United as well. But he just seemed to help. Having Bruce come on seemed to, it gave Ince a little bit more help in there and he seemed to settle everything down a little bit more in defence that then allowed Ince to exert his influence further up the field. And it was a great bit of like pressing to win the ball that he did to then sort of set Keane on the right. That finish, it was a good ball, but... The ball was slightly behind Lee Sharp, and Lee Sharp literally doesn't even. For me, I think I had Sharp as uh, man of the match actually in this game for how good he was in the first half. And then the ball's slightly behind him, and he doesn't even break stride. He just goes right. I'm just going to flick this to the back heel into the bottom left hand corner, <laughs> and Bus gets. He's just stood there, and like, what in the world has just happened? And you can see. I think it's. Natal has gone, what, what just happened there? <laughs> Who's this guy? Who's this guy from uh, the Midlands who's just slotted this ball into the bottom corner? Yeah, and um, then sort of that gave United a... Uh, it just gave us like a second mm. a second wind of energy. 
there was, you know, they you had another a really good chance of it. it was Bruce played this fantastic long ball into Kachelskis on the right. Uh, well, he plays it down, and it, it's initially the ball looks like it's going to fall to Sergi. Kachelskis just like robs the ball off him, like picks his pocket, and then just laid the ball off for Sharp, and it's Nadal that just gets in the way of the ball. I think there was a shout for a handball, but you hand- couldn't really... Yeah, I know, but... I- you didn't get the replay, so you couldn't really see it. Now there would have been about 15,000 replays. You didn't really get that then. It was just like, director, like just move on. This game's still going. I, I, I reckon it was handball. Yeah, it was, it was... I'd have to I'd have to go back and look at it again, but I really, I really couldn't tell. And I think you have to remember at this point, there's no VAR. Yeah. So the referee and the officials, they've got to go off their first look. And if, and you have to say, if I was the referee, you look at the position the referee was in, I don't think he would have been able to really see whether that was a handball or not. And if he can't <laughs> see it, you can't give them. I can imagine this game, by the way, it's available on, on YouTube, full to, to watch. But I can imagine some of the recent comments under this, yeah, our kids... Um, go to VAR, go to VAR. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, it's just, I know, it's it's incredible. The other thing that really struck me about this game was how different Old Trafford seemed to look yeah. back then. It was just, it was, I felt like I was just looking at a completely different stadium um, than, than what it is now. Um, and I think uh, Paul Scholes actually appeared in this game as well. It, um, and he actually set up a, he had a great chance. He robs the ball off Guardiola. This is about a minute from the end of normal time. And uh, Busquets is off his line and he goes to try and chip him and he just misses. He's so close. You think, had he been maybe a yard, half a yard further back when he made the chip, it would have gone in. Mm. It was so close. And I thought, God, can you imagine if he'd have got that goal? I think. And, and then literally within the same minute, Barca go up the other end, a cross comes in, and this is, apart from the goal, this is the only time Romario does anything in this game. He gets in, Steve Bruce, with just this incredible interception. The ball looks like Romario's going to get it, and if Romario had got it, he would have scored, the Barca would have won the game. Bruce just appears out of nowhere, one of those last-ditch saving uh, clearance, uh, you know, interceptions, and then a great clearance away. I think Phil Jones, when he does these things in his head, thinks he's Steve Bruce doing this mm-hmm. but actually he's not because he just wasn't paying attention to what was going on for the previous five minutes mm-hmm. and then he goes oh shit I need to get in there and you know throw myself into this 50-50 challenge using my head I, I think one of my favourite quotes looking back at the commentary was um, I think it was Keegan that said it um, when people like David May stay down they're usually injured what, kind of, <laughs> what, what does that mean? Exactly. Do you know, if people are injured, they usually stay down. I think, well, I, I, it's not quite up in terms of, um, you know, Michael Owen's inanity when he makes comments like, uh, you know, if you can't score, you probably won't win the game and all <laughs> that kind of thing. It's not, it's not at that level. Like, I understood what Keegan meant when he said that. You know, I think he's sort of making out and said, if it was, say, like, oh, I don't know, if... Uh, if it was Stoichkov or Romario, he'd probably think, oh, they're not hurt. And yeah, you just mentioned yeah. the point with Stoichkov where he stays down and then he sees a stretch and he's like, oh, I'm not fucking going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, it's funny because it, there's a lot of... Um, the, the punditry, is, it's, it's, 
they were much more outspoken as well about things. I see there was a few digs from Keegan about about football in general that he was thrown into the commentary, whereas nowadays it's much more polished. Yeah, I kind of, um, I quite enjoyed that. I mean, yeah. obviously I'm not advocating uh, big wrong being racist towards Marcel Dessayi, which is what got him kicked off. Um, but I mean, kind of liked the fact that, actually I found the punditry, really the only, like I love watching Gary Neville and Jamie Callaghan now, because they're two guys that are really incisive and can deliver stuff in a way that you can understand, but is also accurate and also gets you to interpret the game or see things that you may not have seen before, yeah. which is why Neville and Carrigan are so good. But I loved, I mean, for me, I loved Venables and Law. Their punishment you afterwards was, yeah. was just fantastic. You talk about being, yeah, it was outspoken. I have to say, I still kind of preferred Keegan than I prefer most co-commentators now. I mean... The only ones I like in terms of cold commentators, again, are Neville and, and Carragher, really, mm. because they're the only ones that really I, add I, anything I do like Danny Higginbottom. I rate Danny Higginbottom highly. Um, he's okay. Um, I don't see enough of it. He doesn't seem to be on TV enough. Yeah, like, he, he, he used to do um the Friday night games or so on Sky Sports, but he, you know when he did the, even the smaller games, it's very insightful. His columns and that on big... Before big United games, tactically, he's um he's a step ahead. It is, and I remember when Gary Neville was was talking about, uh, you know, punditry when he did the the was it the off the ball thing that he did with Roy Key yes. the show that they did, and um, he was talking about you know. There is a skill in doing punditry well. You see a lot of pundits on TV. I don't think a lot of them are very good because you've got to really engage people and say stuff in a way. A, you've got to demonstrate knowledge and you do have to do some research to be a good pundit or a good analyst. You just do. You have to do research. And I think the thing that why Neville and Carragher are so good is because they do their research. But you look at, look back then, I think Teddy Venables, when he was doing the punditry for this game, was the England manager. So he obviously was still actively involved in the game. You could see Dennis Law was someone who just loved watching football and still loved thinking about the game, even though maybe he really wasn't keen on being a manager. Um, but then you have to then deliver that in a way that's just going to engage the people sat watching it at home. And um, I love I loved Bob Wilson's presenting as well because it's just very... He doesn't try and overtake the broadcast. Yeah, it's yeah. just very simple in delivery. And the thing about Bob Wilson that I always loved as well is that I always remember watching these Champions League games, you always got that kind of... He was able to present things in a way where it felt like a big occasion. And that's what I loved about the ITV Champions League coverage. The problem is now is that I think they try and make a big occasion of every game, even if it's... I always think of the Mitchell and Webb sketch where David Mitchell's... Where David Mitchell's taking the mickey out of the Sky Sports football coverage and they're making a big deal out of Shrewsbury versus Macclesfield. <laughs> and it kind of detracts from the gravitas of when you get a really important game. Yeah, when yeah. when Super Sunday is is um, you know, Newcastle United versus Aston Villa, that's not Super Sunday. Yeah, no, absolutely. You see as well as that the media have a lot of responsibility in that because you see big Champions League games nowadays. It's built up around individual stars like Neymar, Pogba, 
you know when those players are coming together games are almost built up on that but i think the the beauty the beauty of this game that, that we're talking about beforehand it was about football institutions and about two big footballing gladiators coming together you know good ideologies and good teams bubbling um rather than just a circus in the media this was this was about football yeah definitely but the other thing was that i touched on this briefly because football wasn't on this is at the early stage of football becoming a big mass media figure the way that it is now so this is still in its infancy and you couldn't find uh european leagues as easily so there was also the speciality of you know Stoichkoff and Morario yes. and Kuman are coming to town and it, it really really meant something um and I always think it must have made see really this was kind of the last point I feel and I mentioned this when I talked about Cantona in Gal- in Istanbul and Galatasaray this is probably the last point where when you had your away games in Europe they really were away games because you might have not have been able to do as much scouting on the opposition yeah. which makes it difficult um and and also i know this is not the stone age but even back in the early to mid 90s traveling was still slightly more arduous and, and not as simple and as accessible to everyone as it is now so it, it really made you know away games really were away games then. and i think you got the sense of that from barcelona in the first half they were like jesus what the hell is what is this they, they were not prepared at all and you have to remember at this time you know, English football always had this reputation as a lot of the big European leagues don't fill their grounds regularly. Barcelona are notorious for not filling the new camp. They don't often fill it. It's always it's, it's a big problem for them. So suddenly coming to this stadium where and, and sort of, it's only really kind of um, in the last couple of months really where I've seen you know, the atmosphere at Old Trafford pick up again. But back at this period in time, the atmosphere at Old Trafford in the 90s was absolutely blistering it was so loud it was just incredible and the whole game the volume of the game was even watching through this video the atmosphere is absolutely just incredible in in this game and, and the noise when Hughes gets that opening goal it's just a roar and I thought god if you'd have been living in one of those houses at near Old Trafford you'd have felt that absolutely. and you would almost certainly have heard it um it was so that was a special and the other thing as well was this was at a point in time where the Champions League was just for the champions. Mm. You know, this is the first year we are in the 16-team four-group stages going into the knockout format. I mentioned previous week how they were messing around with the format for the first couple of years. Um, so this was the team that sort of sets the, the, the year for the template that you have now. But they were only the league champions or the holders could compete in here. So AC Milan had qualified this year, even though they didn't win the league in Italy the previous year. It was Juventus that won it the previous the league the previous year, I believe. Um, I think it was Juventus. So it was yeah, it was Juventus, and um, that was it. To get into this competition, you either had to win the competition the year before, or you win your league, or you don't get in. Yeah. And I think the other issue that I have with the Champions League now is that there's too many teams in it. I think there's too many teams in European football, which is in, in these European competitions, which I know is what UEFA want because they want to build towards this European Super League. But it really just dilutes it to a point where I think the Champions League is quite boring now. Whereas really going into even match day five when we played IFK Gothenburg in Sweden 
this whole group was up in the balance. Barcelona finished second in this group. Barcelona United finished on the same number of points in this group. Barcelona went through on the head-to-head and the goals scored and the goal difference. That was why Barcelona went through. We finished on the same points. So it was just a little bit of naivety, I think, in the second half of this game and then probably the Gothenburg game that really cost us, the second Gothenburg game that really cost us because we won two of them and we drew two games and we only lost two. Um, And Barca were exactly the same. But, you know, it was um, because Barca had actually lost to to Gothenburg the previous match day. They'd lost Mm. like... 3-4-0 Three, four, nil, or something like that. They got they took a hammering of Gothenburg. Um, so it's it's really interesting. But this is where, and then obviously the next time he came back into the Champions League, which was ninety six, ninety seven, which is where we went all the way to the um, we went all the way to the semi final semi finals that year. So I think you started to maybe see the early in, the early part of Ferguson started to get more of a grasp of European football and trying to set up a team in a way where you could really counter up the opposition um, rather than just go, oh, we'll just play like we usually do and win a game because that didn't work didn't work the season before. And in the end, we didn't quite get it in this group either. Um, but I, I think the big thing that made the difference is United was the UEFA getting rid of that ridiculous foreigner rule. And it wasn't yeah. just... It, it wasn't, it's not just English clubs that had a problem with it. All clubs... All the leagues had a problem with this rule. It's absolutely ridiculous. It's just a stupid, stupid rule. Stopping like a movement of people. Who, essentially, you're stopping the movement of people across different countries because you want to have this nonsense rule about preserving homegrown players, which I just I don't buy into. What? I, think I was if, trying if to you, find out what year they got rid of that. It was the... I think they'd gotten rid of it. This was the last season it was in. So they got rid of it for the next season. Okay. Yeah, um, it's, it's a crazy rule. Crazy rule that it was even allowed in the first place. Yeah, yeah, they 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 got rid of it um, the next season, um, f- thankfully. But yeah, it was it was it was just absolutely ridiculous, ridiculous rule. But this, but it really it was testament to the players that we did have that even with the the people missing in this game, um, we were as competitive as we were. Absolutely. I thought we were absolutely fantastic in this game. Yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, one one of my favorite moments of the game was after, after we got the second goal, the equalizer, and it was time for United to hold on. Um, instantly, you know, it was a time that United needed to show they meant business, and Pallister absolutely smashes one of the the Barcelona players. You know, this means business. I think it was Bigeristan. I think he it was. He just absolutely yeah. hammered him. <laughs> absolutely smashed. But that that's it. This team had leaders and characters. That that was one of my favourite things watching about watching this game was the likes of Vince, the scene even in the first half, um, Peter Schmeichel and Paul Parker had a bit of a coming together and it, there was proper verbal verbal actions, you know, on camera afterwards and the players were having a proper go at each other. You know, it was you don't you don't really see enough of that nowadays, and if you do, a big deal is made of it. No, definitely. Um, there was a bit. I think Barcelona had a passage of play in the second half, which was my favourite moment in the game. In fact, I think it was that bit towards the end where Bruce managed to sort of make the interception and clear the ball from Mario that did not stop Peter Schmeichel charging out of his goal. And just, but I don't know who he was bollocking. It was just like, 
I've got to shout at someone here, so I'm just going to shout at anyone. <laughs> it's just like anyone that I could shout at. It was just, it was, it was crazy. It was, it was crazy. But it, it's just a thing with Barcelona's goalkeeper Busquets was not usually seen as first choice. I think prior to Cruyff coming in, it was Zubi Zarata. But then Zubi Zarata and Cruyff just didn't get along at all. And then he liked Busquets because he could play the ball out with his feet. And Cruyff just sort of would deal with the fact that I, I'll deal with the fact that he makes mistakes mm. just to just to sort of have him in the team really because I I felt like um, you talk about Kuman being in no man's land but Busquets positioning for the Q's goal wasn't good yeah, either. No, wasn't. He, he didn't really contest at all, really. No, he didn't. No. But yeah, have you any other points you want to bring up before we we wrap it up, Mike? <sighs> I just. I mean, interesting. It's just interesting, you know. We obviously the previous season we had cancelled to the league title and the double, um, and then it, it just shows. I think the greater prestige that this competition had, because I feel like the only thing that maintains the prestige of this is the money now yeah. for the, the teams get coming in. But that then there was a real genuine prestige to this tournament. And you could see with this game that in the Premier League we would be brushing teams aside. In fact, even though Blackburn won the league this season, we played Blackburn this this uh it was not long after this and we absolutely hammered them. Um and they were our main competition for the league title. But the step up in quality into the Champions League from the yeah. Premier League was just enormous and it really demonstrated how far behind English football had fallen during that Heiser ban so far behind and it really wasn't until even though obviously United got good in European football really um, in the late 90s but no one else or the English teams really caught up with United until the turn of the century mm. um, because Arsenal even when they went and won the league they were very poor in Europe for a long time they just couldn't really hack it in the Champions League. And, um, yeah, it, um, apart from the odd outlay here and there, I think, obviously, United winning the Cup Winners' Cup in 91. Um, sorry, that was, so that was the first year that they come out of the ban. And then I think Arsenal won the Cup Winners' Cup about two or three years later. Mm. But other than that, um, really, the Cup Winners' Cup was sort of the third competition Um Really, you look at it, the Champions League was the main one. The UEFA Cup was an incredibly difficult trophy to win because basically you had to finish second in your league to get in it. Um, I always remember, like, uh, for me, I always remember the, the UEFA Cup final, I always remember was the Inter versus Lazio one from, I think it was 97, oh, sorry, 98, uh, where Ronaldo was playing for Inter. And it's just incredible. And you think some of that Ronaldo should be played in the Champions League. Back then, the UEFA was a UEFA Cup was a real prestige competition to win. And when it came to the UEFA Cup and the Champions League, English was nowhere near, really. And it took us probably about 10 to 15 years for us to compete at a record that only United were competing really at the, the requisite level because we were in it all the time. Mm. No one else was really competing at all. No, yeah, you know, this this it become the landmark, but now you feel, you know, there's so much commercialism in football. There's a different kind of feel, even with the 
the before the game started and the commentators are you know their genuine excitement around it nowadays it's, it's, it's not quite about the sport is it no not really it's it's not no you know I, I don't have a problem with obviously focusing on great plays and stuff but um there is a sense that they're almost the, the, the games have become secondary and like i said the champions league really until you get to the last eight now yeah, that's that's when it gets exciting before that it's so boring yeah. essentially you've got like um several months of unsatisfying um foreplay but look, I, I know you, you mentioned obviously back 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 then it was the champions that got in. But but nowadays in the group stage you go through each game week when the when the group stage is taking place. There's a lot of fixtures you're putting your ex through saying you you've no interest in watching and this is the Champions League. There shouldn't be any game that that less significant about do you know what I mean? There should be top top clubs, top teams. No, I always used to watch the highlights, actually, that they'd show later on at night as well, when you could see um, all the other teams, Yeah. when it was yeah. still a real novelty to see them. And then whoever was in the final every year, I would always watch it, which mm. is why the event has seemed always sticks in my memory. Obviously, Italian football being on Channel 4 at this point, you could watch it. And then, obviously, they were in three European Cup finals in a row. And that's yeah. why I always remember the Ajax scene that Van Gaal had, because that was the first... Champions League final that I ever remember watching because um, that was on that was on terrestrial TV and it was like oh I have to watch this this is Ajax and AC Milan like mm. you have to you have to watch this game and um, that's gone that's definitely gone that now and and you can just tell with the um, with the atmospheres of the games as well you watch the atmospheres of um, European games these Champions League games the cup winners 15 to 20 years ago that atmosphere was unbelievable yeah um, there was a real the fans everyone got the sense of this is really really special you know even if it was a group stage game it didn't matter every mm. game was special it really mattered it's like this is we are seeing a level of football here that we're not going to see every week so we're really and now she's just not getting that in, in, in some ways I feel like the level really as you've said up until the last eight I feel like the level if you look at the top domestic leagues so you take Germany, uh, England, Italy and Spain, or maybe not Spain right now, but certainly um, Germany, Italy and England. I feel like the level and the competitiveness in the leagues is higher than it is in the, any of the European competitions, really up until those quarterfinals. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. As, well, as well as that, there's always kind of, till teams get to that stage of the Champions League nowadays, Um first legs and second legs they they don't take as many risks as they do when they're later on in the rounds so they don't see those rounds as significant either until they get to it no uh, absolutely absolutely pining for a time that's long gone because that's all we can do right now I can't even go anywhere yeah exactly we'll have to do another match um, in the next week or two Mike um, next week we, we might do something different again we might even do a, a podcast on uh, a different icon that you don't plan on writing about but we might do a focus on a, a historic United figure I think that's a good idea yeah yeah so we'll come up with some ideas um, if you have any ideas for, for podcasts or podcast topics send us a tweet at Streticast we're also on Patreon at our forward slash Stretty News um, the blog is full of news every day on, on, on United so it's at StrettyNews.com uh, and Mike how can people follow you on Twitter so I'm at, um, at 
uh, Mycroft and score Holmes or um, just look for Northern Loudmouth. Um, I would have been tagged actually in the tweet that went out on the um, Shreddycast Twitter account earlier today, so you can find me on there as well. Yeah. I do my old sideline stuff doing writing about uh, writing about films, so you can just find that at uh, northernloudmouth.com and it's uh, North by Northwest Film Bug, you can find that on there. Uh, writing about films past and present so uh, that's where you can find me honestly if you're expecting much of a reply from me it's going to be fairly intermittent (laughs) (laughs) That's, uh, that's it for this week then thanks for listening and we'll see you again soon stay safe Network. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.